You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. As a disclaimer, uh, this paper may not cover all of your favorite women hymn writers, nor does it all of mine. Um, and it will focus only on writers whose songs have been sung congregationally. There are many um, great solo recording artists and choral composers whom we are not able to cover in this hour. We begin um, by looking at songs of women in scripture, which are foundational for Christian hymnody. The term for a song or lyrical passage in the Bible outside the book of Psalms is a canticle. Canticles are poems in scripture intended to be sung. They are what many scholars believe that Paul was describing by his term, spiritual songs. In addition, they are prophetic utterances, often inspired at a dramatic occasion in the history of Israel that recounted in exalted language God's faithfulness to Israel and to all who fear him for all generations. Um, Canticles can be individual or corporate praise, as we'll find out in just a minute. What makes them prophetic is they always reach beyond the immediate situation to reveal something of God's great meta-story, his plan of redemption through Christ which we call Heilsgeschichte. Uh, there are nine important canticles in the Old Testament, um, which monastic choirs have sung in the East and West for centuries um, every week in the morning service. As evangelicals, we've lost these, but they are Moses, Song of Moses 1 and 2, um, Deborah, Hannah, Isaiah has two of them, Hezekiah, um, the lament of Hezekiah, Jonah, and Habakkuk. There are four hugely important New Testament canticles by Zechariah, Mary, the angels, and Simeon, respectively. Um, the first canticle in the Bible, if you take your hand out, um, and I've put Song of Moses and Miriam, is, the, is sung by Moses after crossing the Red Sea, performed antiphonally between Moses as the leader and the supporting choir slash percussion ensemble slash dance team of Miriam and the Israelite women with the hand drums. I love those women. They were never worried about having a bad hair day. They were having church. All right. Um, Deborah's Canticle is also a song of military victory, sung after Israel had defeated, miraculously defeated, the most terrifying ruler and army of the known world, the Assyrian King Sisera. Um, So in your handout, um, the uh, refrain sung by the women is in bold, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Um, That was uh, the the women's refrain. We're going to hear a recent bilingual setting of Deborah's song. Um, If you would uh, look at your handout, please, uh, by Luisa Cruz. And Esther Gonzalez is going to join us. Um, Actually, was unable to join us. That's fine. Um, Ruth Ann will give us the introduction, and we will sing just as written with the Canta de Baracanta in Spanish and then the rest in English. strengthen the 
people with might. Canta Deborah, canta. Canta Deborah, canta. We lift up our voices, everyone together, singing the triumphs of our God. Thank you. The song of Hannah, after the birth of miracle baby Samuel, um, has been recently set to music by Emily Brink, professor at Calvin College and uh, director of its Institute for Christian Worship, um, who set the song in 1986 for the Christian Reformed Psalter hymnal, which she was editing at the time. Let's look at that text. Um, my soul is filled with joy in God my Savior, for he has lifted me and set me high. There's a resonance there with Deborah's song, he's lifted those who are humble. Um, there is no holy one, no rock like our God. That was an answer to the song of Moses, which includes the verse, Exodus 15:11, who is like unto thee, O Lord among gods, who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises. And she's answering that. So each canticle is like a bit of successive uh, increasing uh, revelation of Yahweh. <clears throat> Let's look at the Hannah song in comparison also to um, Mary's song, which comes after that, both um, by mothers um, with miraculous births, and um, theologians have always pointed to the links between these two songs. Ronald F. Youngblood has called Hannah's song the seed plot for Mary's Magnificat. The Latin name for Mary's song is Magnificat Anima Mea, meaning my soul does magnify the Lord. Other um, theologians have pointed that it's evident, even on the most superficial examination of Mary's song, that it has a much wider reference uh, than the occasion, the immediate occasion which called it forth. Mary's song has two settings on your handout, and they both capture the scriptural passage from Luke 2 admirably. Her song in the scripture has three sections. One, her personal worship and exaltation of her own and the world's savior who would be born as her son. Number two, the implications of that birth for the principalities and powers in heaven and on earth for the humble poor uh, and for the humble poor who long hoped for Messiah's coming. And number three, a conclusion recalling Yahweh's faithful fulfillment of his covenant promises to Abraham and his seed forever. Mary, with no power, no voice in society, wrote, in a very real sense, the first Christian hymn, because she is praising her Savior. And the Christological pronouncement in song that welcomed this Savior and ushered in the new covenant between Yahweh and his people, um, which was sung, uh, she sang to the Lord with a short prelude canticle sung by her cousin Elizabeth, as the two pregnant women greeted one another. Um, having been set to music thousands of times in the past two millennia, Mary's song is... Uh, the prototype for the Christian hymn. Your first example, Timothy Dudley Smith, likely the greatest living English language hymn writer today, um, and a deeply evangelical retired, English, uh, retired Anglican bishop, wrote his great paraphrase of Mary's song after being inspired by a, a fresh reading of Luke 2 from um, the New English Bible translation in the 1960s. He uses the words tell out instead of magnify. 
uh, and captures in four stanzas the series of striking images in Mary's song, each of which encompasses what have been called God's righteous acts of great reversal. The poor are raised from the dust, while the mighty are cast down from their seats. The hungry fed and the self-righteous rich sent empty away. Mary's Magnificat is a song of judgment for those who resist God. All of those images were found first in Hannah's song. We're going to sing Emily Brink, um, the Hannah song, and then the Magnificat by Timothy Dudley Smith. Actually, in, um, in the interest of time, let's just move to the Dudley Smith. I think you can see the parallels. Um, it's a wonderful tune called Woodlands. The next setting of Magnificat um, is by none other than Keith and Kristen Getty um, and Stuart Townend in 2010. Kristen um, wrote this while pregnant with their first child, Eliza Joy, and in only two stanzas, she compresses the themes of the Magnificat, just as uh, we've seen, um, but with a, again, a gorgeous Getty-like um, Celtic-sounding melody, My Soul Will Magnify the Lord. The genre of Christ hymn was distinct from the canticles. The Christ hymn, which distinguished early Christian music from that of the synagogue, was a, was a body of newly composed Christocentric texts that were actually doctrinal teaching hymns for new believers in the early church, and that predate even the com completion of Paul's epistles. Most scholars believe that they were composed anonymously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit within the congregations while the New Testament canon was reaching completion. Um, the chief evidence for this view lies in the many quotes of Greek Christ hymns that Paul incorporates in his letters, notably Ephesians 1 and 2, uh, Colossians 1 and 2. Uh, the Ephesians 2 is, Awake thou that sleepest, and Christ will give thee light. Um, that, just that verse. Um, 1 Timothy 3.16, this is a faithful saying. And Hebrews 1, God who at many times and in diverse manners spoke in times past unto uh, the fathers by the prophets. The most extensive Christ hymn in the scripture is the famous kenosis passage, or self-emptying in Greek, in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, also called the kenosis hymn, which traces Christ's steps of self-emptying and self-humbling on his path to the cross. Here, the great reversal theme from the canticles is most gloriously fulfilled. Um, Christ humbled himself to the lowest place, even to death on the cross, therefore, um, fulfilled in the phrase, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. In our newest Baptist hymnal, the 2008, there are four settings of this great passage, by, uh, two of them by female writers, Carolyn Noel's hymn at the, at the Name of Jesus and Cindy Berry's chorus of the same name, taken from her now classic uh, 1985 choral anthem. Have, has anyone sung either of these, either the the hymn or the actual choral? Mm -hmm. Great. I hope your church sings both, and there is every reason why there should be more Christ hymn settings in our worship today. So I'm speaking to you songwriters. Um, Dudley Smith is not a woman, but Mary is. Okay, so that's why we sang that one. Um, and I esteem his setting to be the strongest uh, modern English uh, congregational version of her hymn. Um, now, the Caroline Noel is also extremely doctrinal in its uh, setting of the Philippians 2 Christ hymn. 
and has been highly praised by hymn scholars such as Eric Routley, um, who was the, the leading hymnology uh, scholar of the late 20th century. If you would look at your handout on page three, I have all eight stanzas, and you won't find all eight of them in any congregational hymnal, um, so I had to collate them. Um, and we'll ask when we do sing it that you just sing the italics um, to the tune um, that uh, Miss Persley will play on the piano, which is Y Valley by Mountain. Um, in This hymn setting by Noel actually starts with um, the Every Tongue Will Confess Him and then moves to um, language from the ancient Apostles' Creed, mighty and mysterious in the highest height, God from everlasting, light of light, very God of very God, beautiful language, um, speaking of Christ's co-eternality with the Father, in the Father's bosom with the Spirit blessed. So you get the Trinitarian um, configuration there. And then we, uh, in stanza three, move to a, a account, very poetic account of John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word at his voice, creation sprang to light, and even a narrative of the creation of all the angel um, armies of heaven. You don't run into this in hymnody very often, uh, but very dramatically written. Then we return to the Kenosis hymn where Christ was humbled for a season to receive a name. The next line speaks of the fact that um, the lips of sinners, um, Christ worked with with Peter for a long time before Peter's famous confession uh, when Jesus said, who do, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So he uh, received his name even from us uh, redeemed sinners, and faithfully he bore his name spotless to the last, uh, even bringing it back victorious from death. The next stanza, the um, subject is also his glorious name. Um, bringing it up to the throne of the Godhead. Then we are exhorted to name him, both with the, in the face of imminence and transcendence, with tender love, but also to name him and worship him with awe and wonder and with bated breath, um, because he is to be worshipped, trusted, and adored. Um, the lordship of Christ and the implications of his lordship, um, sanctification and enthroning him in our hearts is the subject of the next stanza, in his name, resisting temptation, and finally watching, just as uh, the angel said to the disciples at the uh, ascension of Christ, brothers, um, this Lord Jesus shall return again, just as you've seen him going. Um, so let hearts confess him, king of glory, now. Back to page three, then, for the text, if you would, please. And we move forward now to 18th century England to meet poet, hymn writer, Anne Steele, the most prominent Baptist writer up to her time, uh, male or female, and her dates are 1717 to 1778. Anne Steele was the daughter of a British Baptist pastor who was bivocational in the sense that he was a timber merchant but got no salary from the little village church that he served for decades, most of her life. She would have died unnoticed had she not been an uncommonly gifted hymn writer. Steele's text became widely published already in her lifetime, 
both in Great Britain and the colonies, in Baptist as well as Methodist and other hymn collections. Consider that she has been omitted from every U.S. published Baptist hymnal um, except the 1883 and 1926, but now is on many recently recorded modern hymn CDs, and you get a sense of her remarkable trajectory. The 1883 Baptist hymnal was the first official denominational hymnal in U.S. history um, published as a joint project between Northern and Southern Baptists. Um, as a note, although Fanny Crosby had been publishing hymns for decades, when this hymnal was released, Steele has more hymns in that book than Crosby. Steele, with 19 hymns, is actually the fifth most represented hymn writer in the collection following Watts, Wesley, Montgomery, and Doddridge. In fact, she beats out John Newton, author of Amazing Grace. How did she learn to write like this? A serious student of God's word, well-trained in scripture by her, by her pastor father, Steele produced hymns on a wide spectrum of topics, ranging from the glories of God's word, a hymn to be sung before the preaching, uh, and many others. Her texts are at once richly biblical, doctrinally articulate and substantive, literary, and disarmingly honest about her personal walk of faith. She especially refined and deepened the genre of spiritual autobiography hymn. Deep calls to deep in her hymns because they grew out of a life of personal tragedy that might have destroyed others. After losing her mother at the age of three and being raised by her father, Steele, at age 19, experienced a near debilitating fall from a horse that would leave her essentially an invalid with severe chronic pain for the rest of her life. Two years later, at 21, she met a wonderful Christian young man and was engaged to be married. The day before the wedding, he drowned while swimming in the River Avon. Out of the unspeakable heartbreak of her fiancé's death, Anne Steele crafted the hymn, When I Survey Life's Varied Scene, which is on page three for you. The title of this hymn in ten stanzas is an obvious homage to her poetic model, the figure who towered over her generation, Isaac Watts. So we do survey the wondrous cross, but we also have to survey our own life and the dark and light that it includes. She gave it the title, the subtitle, Desiring Resignation and Thankfulness, suggesting that she was praying toward that and maybe wasn't there yet, but desiring it. When she published it in her first collection, Poems on Subjects Chiefly Devotional, in 1760, the hymn in its original form had 29 stanzas. I'm sorry, excuse me. Uh, the hymn in its original form has appeared in 29 hymnals. Okay, got that right. Um, um, you see it with, with five stanzas here. Um, but just a few years later, a shortened, revised version of just three stanzas appeared in Augustus Top Ladies collection, Psalms and Hymns, 1776. He's the author of Rock of Ages, Clef for Me. And um, he omitted these first two stanzas, when I survey life's varied scene, amid the darkest hours, sweet rays of comfort shine between, 
and thorns are mixed with flowers. Lord, teach me to adore thy hand from whence my comforts flow, and let me in this desert land a glimpse of Canaan know. It's very polished and reserved poetry, but she's expressing some, some depth of emotion there. Top Lady's version starts with the next verse. Instead of saying, and oh, what air of earthly bliss, um, he changes it to Father. Father, what air of earthly bliss, thy sovereign will denies. Accept it at thy throne of grace. Let this petition rise. Give me a calm and thankful heart from every murmur free. The blessings of thy grace impart and make me live to thee. So she is praying, whatever else you deny, just grant this one thing, that I can live to thee. This version, Top Lady's version of it, has appeared in 650 hymnals. It is clearly the hymn, her, the hymn of her life, her signature hymn, for which she is most remembered. Even truncated to three stanzas, there's something in there that has so connected and resonated with believers across many denominational lines that it would be picked up in that many hymnals and it would be sung by believers facing trials as well. But it is not her grandest hymn. What I would call her magnum opus is less known, um, a later epic hymn that she wrote of 33 stanzas entitled Redeeming Love, a magnificent meditation for Holy Week, on the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, drawing together Old and New Testament passages into a dazzling mosaic of scriptural imagery, language, and doctrine. From this extended poem, select stanzas have been taken and made into hymns for worship. In Britain, her hymns remained a staple, especially in Reformed and Baptist hymnals, notably those of William Gadsby, 1838, the leader of 19th century British high Calvinism, and Charles Spurgeon. I don't know, how many of you knew that Spurgeon compiled a hymnal for his own church? Very thoughtfully and carefully put together. Uh, Spurgeon, in his great collection entitled Our Hymn Book, compiled for his congregation at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, 1866. In the United States, uh, after the turn of the century, the Baptist hymnal published in 1926 Steel is represented by only two texts instead of the 19 that she had before. And it took a um, Presbyterian campus group in Nashville in the 1990s and the Indelible Grace Band under the direction of Kevin Twitt to rediscover and reintroduce her to American evangelicals, including Baptists, and she has become a rising star since then. It is my joy to welcome and to be honored by Kevin Twitt's presence here. Would you just give him a thank? It is through um, the CDs of Indelible Grace that I came to know Steele's hymnody. Um, the prayer hymn, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul, is one of her best in its genre and was Steele's first big comeback hit, um, recorded on Indelible Grace's first album in 2000, the album which also included um, thou lovely source of pure delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauty to my sight, that I may love thee more. Um, yes, thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Okay, that's fan that is fantastic. Um, 
And then I mentioned her epic hymn, Redeeming Love. Well, the indelible grace, O love incomprehensible, draws stanzas from Steele's Redeeming Love with a chorus taken from Augustus Toplady on the indelible grace second album, Pilgrim Days, which came out in 2001 with Sandra McCracken as soloist. Love her voice. Um, Dear Refuge was then picked up by Jars of Clay on their first hymn CD, Redemption Songs, in 2005. Anybody have that or, or listen to that? It seems that nearly everyone now is, has at least one Ann Steele track on their latest hymn CD, um, Worship so Sojourn Worship Band, and more. Uh, in fact, Sandra McCracken's 2010 solo album, In Feast or Fallow, contains Steele's hymn, uh, When Sins and Fears Prevailing Rise, entitled on the CD simply 980 Ann Steele, which is the hymn number in Gadsby's hymnal. So there's sort of an in-house uh, reference here. Um, an important Southern Seminary dissertation by Joseph Carmichael, 2013, directed uh, in the field of church history, um, directed by Michael Haken, analyzes Steele's piety from her hymns and her writings. I would love to see the next Steele dissertation um, covering the current renaissance of her hymnody among evangelicals and included discography, please. Um, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul uh, seems to me to perhaps be even more honest um, than her first hymn. When I survey, written at the tender age of 21, uh, when I survey life's varied scene, is delicately worded with guarded emotion, even in the face of the raw pain that she was experiencing. But Dear Refuge um, is the voice of a more mature woman, a believer who has walked longer with the Lord. And she cuts loose a little bit more, um, perhaps in the way that David does in the Psalms. So I commend her hymns to us all. We may know Frances Ridley Havergal only for her classic hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be. Um, Havergal was a highly educated, remarkable woman, a scholar of the scriptures, of languages, modern and biblical, and other disciplines, with a gift and passion for personal evangelism. She was a force to be reckoned with in sharing the gospel with her friends and people uh, she came across. She was born into a wealthy family in 19th century England, and her privileged background also placed her in contact with um, many figures of the day. Her correspondences are uh, important, and again, she has a huge body of hymnody that um, scholars are now working on beyond what is, appears in most modern hymnals. I discovered Havergal's Thou Art Coming, O My Savior, in the campus hymnal of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship when I was a college student active in that group years ago. That is one group that actually had its own scholarly, well-edited hymn book. Um, and I was amazed by its beauty and biblical depth. If you would turn to that text, please. Thou Art Coming by Havergal. On page 3, the hymn looks forward with joyous anticipation to Christ's coming, both his ultimate return and to the way that he comes to us in his meal at the Lord's table. I had also noticed the connection to the Old Testament priesthood in the first stanza. I had read Exodus before, but I came to understand the Old Testament priesthood and its fulfillment in Christ in a better way from this beautiful hymn. Um, the golden bells hung on the hem of the high priest were um, uh, a signal because when going into the Holy of Holies, he might die. Um, 
under the presence of God's almighty power. But um, we hear Christ's golden bells. In stanza three, we are witnesses at his table. And she makes the point that um, the communion we have with the Lord is an earnest of our coming bliss or a down payment of the bliss and joy we will receive in heaven. Um, and that the table shows not only the cross and Christ's death, but it shows his coming and his throne, all for which we long and wait. Oh, the joy to see thee reigning, thee, my own beloved Lord. There's a great deal of scripture woven together here, and even um, touching again on Philippians 2, that he, he will be vindicated and enthroned onto earth's remotest end and glorified and owned. We move. Um, to another poet whose name I think may be familiar to you at least at one season of the year. Christmas is almost here, and many of us will likely receive at least one card with the lyric, What shall I give him, poor as I am? This is actually the final stanza of a longer poem by English poet Christina Rossetti entitled In the Bleak Midwinter. The season would not be complete without the exquisite, spectacularly theological um, nativity hymns of Rossetti. Born in London in an intellectual, artistic Italian family, um, she is a leading English poet of the whole Victorian era. Her brother, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, what a great name, uh, was a painter, one of the leading founder, one of the founders of the pre-Raphaelite movement in painting, and he's known for his works um, with languid, mystical beauty on subjects from medieval romance and so on. He's also a poet. Um, the two of them both. Uh, wrote exquisite sonnets, and she did not set out to be a hymn writer, but um, the fine crafting of her texts have caused musicians and composers to seek her out. So there are um, several dozen of her um, texts in modern hymnals today. Hymnary.org is the best go-to website that I recommend um, for scholarly just research, and they list 40 texts of hers that have entered hymnals. Um, in the bleak midwinter, and love came down at Christmas being the top two. The third most frequently printed is called None Other Lamb. We have it in your handout. She originally published it in her collection, Face of the Deep, a set of devotional poems on the revelation. However, the way that Rossetti personalizes this meditation, um, it connects with Revelation 5-6. I looked, and there was none there was none found that could open the book, and I wept. But she personalizes this meditation into a heart-wrenching prayer, making it resonate for me more closely with Psalm 73, 25, which is printed on the top of your text. Page 6 in your handout. You have the music. The psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And on earth there is none that I desire beside thee. None other lamb, none other name, none other hope in heaven or earth or sea. The um, evaluation that Eric Routley gave her was her special facility for writing short epigrammatic poems of true lyric, which is, this is certainly one, and her pro profound evangelical diction combined to make Rossetti the most literate and poetically gifted of all Victorian female writers. I would love to analyze the 
um, tune at great depth for you. Peggy Smith, Spencer Palmer uh, was a British or Welsh church musician, a composer of a few hymn tunes. Um, but I will direct your attention simply to, um, although the key is C major, uh, the overall quality of most of the chords is minor. And then on the last phrase, none other hiding place from guilt and shame. I'll just ask Ruthann to play that phrase. Thank you. That chord on guilt is kind of the turning of the, the heart there. Um, she uses a dissonance, and dissonance, of course, is caused by something that's out of place. Um, here it, it reflects on the things we hide inside that don't belong there, the guilt and the shame. Um, circle or parenthetical notes mean they don't belong. Those are non-chord tones. And the dissonance here is created by a wrong note on the word guilt, that C in the alto, which we call um, a four moving down to a three suspension. And when that note is resolved down to B, then there's another wrong note on shame that has to be resolved, something like the chain reactions in our own lives caused by our sin. And then one more note slips down in the bass at the end of shame, if you see that A going down to G in the bass, until finally we are ready to confess one last time at the end of the uh, first stanza, that there is none beside thee, as we confess that to the Lord Jesus. Um, the composer who can do this is a master. If you can make it, uh, if you can make that special chord fit for all of the subsequent stanzas as well, and she does, because stanza two reaches for um, the anguish of the prayer intensifies to a thunder as Rossetti reaches for Psalm 130, out of the depths, I cried to thee, historically called the De Profundis. Um, and she says, only my heart's desire cries out in me by the deep thunder of its want and woe. So want and woe are the two dissonant chords in that stanza. And in stanza three, finally, it seems to evoke Jesus' own words to his disciples when he said that he had no place to lay his head. And those same wrenching chords now express the pain and irony of Jesus' homelessness on this earth, even though he came here to become our home. The amen um, flows out of this hymn's yearning mood, but then resolves it finally, um, moving from a minor four to uh, a very distant major seven and, and back with a melody that echoes the nun beside thee. We move forward into the, um, with only a, a grateful um, recognition um, to America, moving forward to Fanny Crosby, um, the queen of, of American evangelical hymnody with her probably close to 8,000 texts. Um, Crosby had begun to make a name for herself as a poet um, as it, in the sheet music industry um, of parlor song and other related genres. Uh, she was a successful teacher at the New York School for the Blind, teaching um, rhetoric, Latin, English. It was a cutting-edge school, um, a great model for education. She met her husband there, uh, Henry Van Alstyne, and uh, also on the faculty there. Um, and then attending, and was a church-going Methodist at the time, uh, attending a revival service, um, this, 
where she experienced Christ and um, her life changed, the singing of Cooper's There Is a Fountain Filled with Blood was sung at that revival service. And it's amazing that his uh, own life, and you know, hundreds of years earlier, um, made such an impact on her, as well as D.L. Moody, who had been quite a renegade. Um, and uh, it, was the, it was that hymn that was at the worship service when he gave his life to Christ. So a single hymn um, resulting in Fanny Crosby's 8,000 more. A single hymn resulting in, um, in D.L. Moody's ministering to millions all around uh, the world. And again, um, it's the Holy Spirit doing this, but it's amazing the instruments that he has used. Of all of uh, Crosby's hymns, um, I think of Jesus Keep Me Near the Cross as, as one of the most effective. Um, and in fact, in that first line, there a precious fountain, we still get an echo of, of Cooper's hymn there. Um, her hymns reflect the uh, devotional poetry, poetic style of her era. Um, we might not use the word golden strand in our poetry, um, but her hymns still speak to us. Drawing to a close, um, I've long been drawn to to what I call lifespan hymns, which texts which we can sing at any season in our life or the lives of those we love. A rare one of these seems to arise in each generation that the whole church can gather around and own. It draws people around the gospel. Um, 30 years ago or so, that hymn was Gloria and William Gaither's Because He Lives. I think of it as, I now think of it as the In Christ Alone of the previous generation. Both of those songs have references to infancy and life's end, life's final fight with pain, as Gaither says. The Gaither hymn does not attempt to, hold, to tell the whole Christ story, but instead it flows from one promise of Christ to Martha in John 11, because I live, you shall live also. And it applies that promise triumphantly to every need and situation, even for the next generation beyond us, those who will keep living and facing the unknown long after we caregivers are gone. That thought now scares me, now that I'm a parent. <laughs> but it is um, our faith in him that everyone has the sweet joy of holding a newborn baby um, and feeling the pride and joy he gives. But those who don't know Christ don't have that calm assurance that this child can face uncertain days because he lives. I included one more hymn by a writer you may not know, Mary B Louise Bringle. Um, she is um, a professor uh, in the Humanities Department, chair of the Humanities Department at Brevard College, I believe, and has been a prolific um, church musician and hymn writer in recent years who wrote, has written a hymn to the tune Finlandia on um, the end stage of life, especially memory loss. Um, which for so many people involves loss of identity. When memory fades and recognition falters, um, if you just think of the Finlandia tune, Finlandia tune as, as uh, I read, when eyes we love grow dim and minds confuse, speak to our souls of love that never alters. Speak to our hearts by pain and fear abused. O God of life and healing peace, empower us with patient courage by your grace infused. As frailness grows and youthful strengths diminish in weary arms which worked their earnest fill, your aging servants labor now to finish their earthly tasks as fits your mysteries will. We grieve their waning, 
yet rejoice, believing your arms, unwearied, shall uphold us still. Deuteronomy 33, 26-27, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. I close with um, the leading um, hymn writer of the 20th century of Canada and one of our leading hymn writers for North America, Margaret Clarkson, remarkable woman. Um, a number of these, if we had searched, uh, researched more, um, we discovered that they struggled with serious uh, health setbacks for most of their lives. Clarkson, um, whom I had the privilege of meeting in her 80s um, at a conference, but um, spent her life as a, as a teacher um, and hymn writer, church musician, wrote an autobiography. Um, all of her life struggled with severe migraines, um, intense, uh, the most intense kind, with convulsive vomiting, just, um, and then later in life, arth severe arthritis. God never took those things away. Um, my, uh, Mar Margaret Clarkson did not marry. Um, she writes in her autobiography, A Singing Heart, um, quite candidly and honestly about her singleness as well. I've always appreciated that about her. Um, and uh, is most known for a very um, majestic hymn on John 14, We Come, O Christ, to Thee. Um, but if you uh, were in school or in college in the, in the 60s and 70s, you would know So Send I You, which was a commissioning hymn um, based on Jesus' uh, commissioning to the disciples of great um, impact. And for reasons I can't quite explain, Ms. Clarkson toward the end of her life, revised this hymn quite dramatically. She wrote her autobiography as a much older person in the, in the 1980s and um, said that um, she felt, she said, I, I wrote this song when I was 22 and I realize now that it's rather one-sided. Well, I was rather shocked because I was so impacted, even as a 10, 12, 13-year-old, by this hymn. And um, just as a thought to ourselves to reflect on, one hymn doesn't need to say it, doesn't need to say everything. Um, but this hymn, as originally written, had a powerful impact. And um, the call to sacrifice, um, the call to take up our cross, well, I don't think that's one-sided. I mean, this is very much um, uh, God's call to Isaiah saying, I will send you to a people who have ears, but they will not listen to you. And they will have hearts hard. By hatred, And this is also Jesus' final speech to his disciples in Matthew 24 and 25. Um, and, and this is the Sermon on the Mount. So um, if God has, uh, if you have written a song that requires revision or is grammatically incorrect or doctrinally off base, please revise it. But if, if God has used something you've written, it's out there. You can't remove the imprint of that song on people's hearts any more than you can remove a tattoo. Um, this, this is a very powerful song um, that I would commend for you for commissioning services or, or missions. Um, let's close with We Come, O Christ, to Thee. The wonderful British tune Darwall was written by John Darwall, and um, she is a master poet in her use here of itemization, Jesus' um, three claims, the three great claims, the way, the truth, and the life are here in stanzas two and three and four. As the book of Proverbs says, many women have done valiantly. Um, story and biography are important in the historic procession of the church, at least until time shall end. For the present, 
Until time races to its final goal, I hope that the lives and hymns of the writers discussed here will inspire each of us to run our own race, and may Christian believers continue to unfold and adorn the gospel in new texts and songs that magnify the Lord who is our Savior and extol his faithfulness to all generations.